This is Tom Wilmoth. Welcome to The Vinyl Approach. I've been fortunate to have experienced a handful of what I call master classes in music. There was no classroom involved, but each provided me with a deep learning experience. One was my association with jazz broadcaster Lay Kamen. Another came during the early unbridled days of public radio when I had the opportunity to get behind the microphone and play whatever music I wanted. The master class I want to discuss today predates both of these hands-on experiences, but it too has to do with radio. When I was growing up in Des Moines, our family would regularly drive the 60 miles to visit my mother's parents on their Iowa farm. A restless teen, I would often gravitate to the family car and listen to its AM radio. My access to this radio always depended on the mood of my father, who was eternally worried that I would run down the car battery. Alone, I adjusted the dial to pick up distant and what seemed to me to be exotic stations. There was nothing really wrong with the Top 40 radio station in Des Moines, but I wanted to hear voices from faraway lands. Two of my regulars were WHB in Kansas City and the Midwestern giant WLS out of Chicago. WLS had been a radio station that gave farm information. Then, in 1960, literally overnight, WLS switched from giving reports on hog futures to playing the top 40. One Sunday night in the fall of 1969, bored at my grandparents' farm, I tuned the car radio to WLS. A man was discussing the background of pop music. I listened for a while and was surprised to hear that the subject was being taken seriously. The announcer was talking about Fats Domino and playing several of his hits, ones I had never heard. This was not a casual overview. I sensed some depth, at least compared to what I had heard on the radio before, which rarely played a Fats Domino record, even as an oldie. And I had never heard anybody attempt to contextualize Domino's rhythm and blues piano roots. But this program was doing just that. I listened, I liked what I heard, and I learned. Being at my grandparents' farm, the nighttime radio signal from Chicago came in quite well. All too soon there came a tap on the window, and I was told that we were heading home. I tried to continue listening on the way back to Des Moines, but with adults in the car it was a losing proposition. However, my interest had been piqued. The following Sunday night I tuned into WLS on the chance that this was a weekly show. I was happy to recognize the announcer's distinctive voice, again giving intelligent commentary about the music. What was I hearing? Before each commercial break, voices would sing out, The History of Rock and Roll. This seemed accurate, but what exactly was the history of rock and roll? In 1969, there was no internet to consult, and the thought of making a phone call to WLS to ask about the show was absurd. This being a Chicago station, it would be a long-distance call. Few words delivered by parents in the 1960s were more fearsome to the youth of America than long-distance call. You just didn't make them. They cost money. So I wondered, and I continued to tune into WLS each Sunday night. I would come to find out that what I had been hearing was a 48-hour radio special. It had originally aired uninterrupted in early 1969 on big deal radio stations, first in Los Angeles and then in New York. Chicago's WLS had bought the rights to play the program and were cutting it into six-hour segments. I had caught the show in the car that night near its beginning. And as the weeks went on, I tried to listen each Sunday as much as I could. But reception in Des Moines was not as clear as in the country, and rainstorms impeded at least a couple of the segments. Then, great and unexpected news. 
A new Des Moines FM station announced that it would be broadcasting the entire History of Rock and Roll special over Labor Day weekend. My friends had no idea what I was so excited about, but I knew exactly what this meant. I would have a clear shot at hearing and recording this unusual show about the music I loved. I prepared. I was able to borrow a reel-to-reel tape deck from my school's AV department, and I liberated several reels of tape for the undertaking. 48 hours of recording? Bring it on. I was not the only one excited by such news. A friend of mine was serving in Vietnam in 1969 when New York City's WOR announced that they would be airing the show. He later told me that two of his fellow soldiers requested time to go stateside specifically to record the history of rock and roll off the radio. The requests were granted. Radio programmer and station consultant Bill Drake was the guiding force behind the history of rock and roll. In 1968, he decided to put together what he called a detailed history that would trace the music's roots and demonstrate various connecting links. That doesn't sound like all that revolutionary of an idea now, but in 1968, it hadn't been done much, if at all. At that time, there wasn't a lot of serious commentary about the music played on the radio or about current music that didn't make it onto the radio. Rolling Stone had started publication just the previous year, and Cream Magazine would begin the next. There were Billboard, Cashbox, and The Gavin Report, but these were trade papers for people in the industry. They dealt with business. Documenting the music trends of post-World War II America had not been widely explored. In 1968, even Charlie Gillette's groundbreaking book, The Sound of the City, was still two years away. Bill Drake was very important to radio in the 1960s, but if I say the name Bill Drake to most people, even to radio insiders, I get blank stares. This doesn't surprise me. Bill Drake's radio genius was not as an on-air personality like Alan Freed or Casey Kasem. Instead, Bill Drake knew how to program radio. That is, he decided what would be played on a station and how it would be played. He dictated the way in which a radio station would fill its broadcast day, minute by minute, Station owners paid Drake a large amount of money for his advice because he had the formula for attracting a large audience. He called it Boss Radio. Many of Bill Drake's innovations became so widely used that they don't seem the least bit radical. But they were. Some seem like no-brainers, like the primary goal, have a radio station play as much hit music as possible. One thing Bill Drake did to meet this goal was to reduce the length of station jingles that introduced the news break or the weather report. In the past, these could be elaborate 20- or 30-second introductions. Drake reduced them to sound stingers of maybe two seconds. He knew lengthy jingles wasted time, time that could be used for playing music. So instead of having a drawn-out vocal introduction, the Boss Radio format replaced it with a quick stinger saying, KCRQ Weather, and boom, the announcer gives a bare-bones forecast. Better yet, get rid of news and weather reports altogether. News and weather are not why people are tuning in to Top 40 Radio. They want to hear the music. Another way to get more songs in an hour, keep the disc jockeys talk brief. Some announcers had loyal audiences, but Drake was at the forefront of making DJs secondary to the music. Even for announcers with a proven following, Drake would allow them only a small amount of time to talk before the next record had to begin, mere seconds. As might be expected, he had battles with some on-air personalities over this time requirement. Bill Drake wanted to saturate the listener with music. He also wanted the audience to know what to expect before they tuned in. 
To that end, boss radio stations would only play records that were current, bona fide hits. They would repeatedly play the same top 20 songs. Unless it was a record by somebody like the Beatles or Rolling Stones, a Bill Drake station would not air a new release until it had shown itself to be a song that listeners wanted to hear. Part of his method of getting this information was to keep an active request line open. The process worked, and worked well. Stations that had been failing economically suddenly found themselves with huge listening audiences and rating numbers that the owners could barely believe. These increased ratings meant that the station could now charge higher rates for their on-air advertisements. And speaking of ads, Bill Drake was insistent that the time spent on commercials each hour was kept to a minimum. Potential revenue lost by running fewer ads would be made up by charging more for each one, which was possible because of the station's increased ratings. Fewer ads took up less space, meaning more airtime for the hit records. This nearly constant flow of recognizable songs gave listeners less of a reason to tune their radios to another station. Why does all of this matter? Because Bill Drake and his consulting company, Drake Chenault, were very successful with their boss radio format. They were the architects of modern commercial radio. Drake was a big name in broadcasting, and powerful. When he turned his attention to a project, it got done. Not many people in radio had the clout to create a 48-hour radio special and then to make sure it got broadcast. But Bill Drake had been so successful at programming radio stations and giving owners huge profits, nobody was going to doubt his ideas. In 1968, he began production on the History of Rock and Roll, which would first air in early 1969. Robert W. Morgan is the announcer for the original version of the special. Morgan has a pleasant and distinctive delivery. It's a voice that doesn't get tiresome, an important consideration when listening to such a lengthy rockumentary. By the way, the history of rock and roll was the first to use this term rockumentary, as far as I know. It initially sounded like an in-joke, but they were serious about it. Over the decades, the term rockumentary has come into general use. Since Bill Drake's genius was in programming radio stations, it's interesting to see how he formatted his marathon lesson in music. Surprisingly, the program is at odds with some of Drake's basic ideas about what successful radio should sound like and the entire boss radio format. For one thing, as a history, the program can't play a lot of the latest hits, no current hits at all, in fact, and no repetition of songs. Maybe more unexpected, there is a lot of talk during the program. This too makes sense as the importance of different artists is explored. Background, musical connections, and individual songs are discussed. In addition to the announcer's own narrative, there are brief excerpts of interviews with performers. In the first hours, the voices of Bill Haley and Little Richard are all heard, as are songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and producer Ahmet Erdogan. Some artists were interviewed for the special. Other clips were taken from existing interviews, like that with Buddy Holly. Either way, there's a lot of speaking involved. None are lengthy comments, but together they make up a lot of talk during the show, something that Drake had always been adamant about avoiding. In addition, the mandate of well-known music goes out the window as soon as the first hour begins. I wonder what some program directors thought as they started to air this massive special. Because he had made them a lot of money, station owners had become disciples of the Bill Drake way of formatting their radio stations. But this? Immediately after an introductory montage of older hits, the program plays excerpts of songs by the Reverend Overstreet, Tampa Ray, and Earl Bostick. Pretty obscure stuff by artists who had never been played on these top 40 stations before and likely never would be heard there again. The history does not dwell on these recordings, but several early artists are represented. All of them were unknown to me. 
This is where I was first exposed, if only briefly, to people like Big Joe Turner and Sonny Boy Williamson. The focus soon shifts from musical antecedents of the pop charts to artists who actually had hit records, like Bo Diddley and Lloyd Price. You can almost hear station management breathe a sigh of relief as these songs come on. I said that I heard this history of rock and roll special, but that's an understatement. I studied it. I listened to what I could on the Sunday night segments out of Chicago, but once I was able to record it, I played it a lot. It was a touchstone for me, and I'll say it again, this was a master class. There are a lot of shows now with the name History of Rock or History of Rock and Roll. Curiously, the people at Drake Chenault did not copyright the specific name. Because of this, many later programs with similar titles make discussing this original production confusing. But this was the first and, for the time, the most massive examination of rock and roll. Or maybe it should more accurately be billed as the history of America's pop charts. When the rockumentary plays Mitch Miller's Yellow Rose of Texas, or Johnny Mathis's Chances Are, there's not a lot of rocking going on. But both were big hits, and each record helps to tell the story of Top 40 Radio between 1952 and 1968. One thing this program helped give to pop music was credibility. The producers were taking their subject matter seriously, which encouraged listeners to do the same. Like a Ken Burns documentary, its length allowed for depth. Taking 48 hours to cover just over 15 years of material, the history of rock and roll had time to look closely not just at the songs and performers, but also at the music's backstory and various connecting threads. The program has its blind spots, no doubt, and some complained of the scattershot approach to presenting the songs. But this musical diversity gives an accurate representation of the varied genres found on Top 40 Radio during this era. A billboard chart for a week in March 1964 shows that the most played records that week were by Dusty Springfield, James Brown, The Beach Boys, Sam Cooke, The Beatles, and Louis Armstrong. That's a pretty diverse roster. I have called the original edition of the History of Rock and Roll a masterclass. Okay, so what did I learn? First, I learned of artists that were new to me, like Eddie Cochran and Jimmy Reed, and gained respect for some I thought I already knew about, like the Coasters. I became more keenly aware of many songs that have resonated throughout my music life. I mentioned the non-rocking song Chances Are a minute ago. That tune has proven to have staying power. Other records, like Venus by Frankie Avalon or Bobby V's The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, have the same impact. I first heard these pop records on my parents' kitchen radio when they were new, but the history of rock and roll cemented them in my brain and made me give them closer consideration. These songs and their performers are worth knowing. The program also gave me an appreciation for some harder-edged music, like the early recordings of B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf. I learned of the influence that country music had on rock. Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash are each given time here. At one point, Marty Robbins' 1961 country hit Don't Worry is played. All I had ever heard by Robbins was El Paso. But Don't Worry was mind-bending. It includes a severely distorted bass guitar solo that, as the announcer says, still sounds like tomorrow. And it still does. This country hit also made the top 40 pop chart, though I had never heard it before. Its inclusion in the history of rock and roll made me interested in Marty Robbins and caused me to look for other records by him. Being encouraged to go beyond an artist's best-known material was a frequent result of this broadcast. I also learned of music appropriation. 
The special didn't shy away from talking about how original rhythm and blues performers had potential hits whisked away from them before they could garner much radio play. The song Shaboom is a good example. Recorded first by the African-American singing group The Chords, it was immediately re-recorded by The Crew Cuts, a group with a sound as white as its name. Shaboom became a big hit in the earliest days of rock, but it was a hit for The Crew Cuts, not The Chords. Many things come into play here. Timing, record distribution, and especially race had a hand in keeping The Chords off of the playlists of some radio stations in the 1950s. Pat Boone was the poster boy for re-recording and sanitizing material, first recorded by Fats Domino and by Little Richard, among others. Boone made a career out of it, but Bill Drake and his writers are careful not to openly criticize Pat Boone or this trend. They pointed out, play parallel excerpts from two recordings of the same song, and let listeners draw their own conclusions. This was interesting and unknown territory for me. A section was given to James Brown's importance. This might have been the first time I had heard the man's music. The program did an hour on Bob Dylan, playing songs I sort of recognized. Hearing this segment was the reason I later asked slightly older people about Dylan. And the history of rock and roll was where I first heard anyone seriously discuss the early records of Elvis Presley with respect, if not awe. I learned that the saxophone was the predominant instrument of early rock and roll. The sax shows the music's strong rhythm and blues elements as it morphs into rock and roll. Chuck Berry changed the game from saxophone to guitar, but piano is also prominent on some Chuck Berry records. The importance of piano to early rock and roll brings to mind the influence of Jerry Lee Lewis's handful of hits. Saxophone breaks are replaced by electric guitar solos. Upright bass is replaced by an electric instrument. These are some of the transitional elements discussed and which I had not considered before. I mentioned these changes here in broad strokes, but you get the idea. I learned a lot. The history of rock and roll not only made me aware of some specifics, but probably more importantly, it started me thinking about other aspects of music and inspired me to search out information on my own. As much as the program's commentary was enlightening, it was the music that remained the most important element in the history of rock and roll. With a 48-hour canvas covering less than 20 years, the producers had time to go beneath the surface. When covering Chuck Berry, the program played five full-length versions of Berry's own hits and a medley of his other recordings that were influential on other bands. I'm not sure I had ever heard a Chuck Berry record before this broadcast. I knew his songs as recorded by the Beatles, but not Chuck's originals. I would say these are deep catalog cuts, but most were big radio hits. They only seem obscure now, as they did to me in 1969, because radio had stopped playing them, even as oldies. This remains true. A song like Chuck Berry's School Day is rarely played even on Sirius XM's channel dedicated to hits of the 1950s. At one point, the history of rock and roll discussed Donovan. They gave him almost as much time as Bob Dylan, playing half a dozen Donovan records, including a live track. Some of these songs were not short. Ray Charles was also given a lot of space, both in music and conversation. Brother Ray was a performer who the broadcast called the personification of soul. The history of rock and roll was broken down into sections of specific music genres, like hard rock, folk music, and modern blues. The group Canned Heat even recorded some specific, funny material, especially for this modern blues section. Also included were two 12-hour time sweeps. The first was a pop music segment that played and discussed noteworthy hit songs from the early 1950s through 1968. For its cutoff point, they concluded with Jose Feliciano's version of Light My Fire, 
a number three hit in July 1968. Think about that end date. At the time this special was being produced in the summer of 68, the Beatles are still together, Fleetwood Mac is a blues band, Elvis had not yet had his comeback special, and Woodstock hasn't taken place. These are just four things. Also in 1968, the world had not yet heard of Michael Jackson, Elton John, Disco, or Madonna. That's a lot. But the original rockumentary didn't need to spend time discussing any of these things as they hadn't yet occurred. The history of rock and roll's closing date of mid-1968 turns the show into a time capsule of music. This explains the attention given to some musicians, such as Donovan, who I mentioned a minute ago. In 1968, Donovan was at his career peak. His star would soon fade, though, and his lengthy overview found in the original broadcast was eliminated in later versions. After 1968, Ray Charles was not the touchstone for all things soul he had once been, and he too was given less attention. Because there was time, the first version of the history of rock and roll could delve into a few brief, whimsical tangents. One of these was a feature they called the Non-Singers Singers segment. In it, they play a verse from the Western narrative hit Ringo by actor Lauren Green and excerpts from songs by Stan Freeberg, Mrs. Elva Miller, Alan Sherman, and Leonard Nimoy. Other curiosities made their way into this section, like a short clip of pitcher Denny McLean at the Hammond organ playing the association's Cherish, and defensive tackle Roosevelt Greer singing Spanish Harlem. After the humor, this non-singers segment concludes with a full version of the somber Ballad of the Green Berets by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. A surprising inclusion, perhaps, and rarely heard today, but Sadler's record was the number one single for all of 1966. Many of these entertaining musical backroads would be eliminated in the updated versions of the history of rock and roll. Unfortunate, but time had to be given to the artists and music trends that emerged after 1968. The program was lengthened from 48 hours to 50 and then to 52 hours, but this wasn't enough to keep a lot of the original material from being edited out to make room for the new. From an examination of 15 years of music, the last version of the program attempted to look at nearly three decades. It was especially the exploration of rock's earliest and deepest caverns that became truncated or removed altogether from the later editions of the broadcast, replaced by hours of hit records from a given year. Good songs for the most part, but the distinctive nature and spirit of the rockumentary suffered. Later versions of the show just weren't as interesting as the first. But a more detailed account of this lament must be saved for another time. In fact, the history of making and revising the history of rock and roll is itself a long and complicated story. I can't do it justice here. I hope you'll forgive me on this episode of The Vinyl Approach. I'm discussing something that is not available for you to hear. The early version I praise today is not online and is not even found in collectors' trading circles, so far as I know, and believe me, I have looked. When I recorded the show in my Des Moines basement some five decades ago, all of my audio equipment died at about hour 36. I've heard the entire special, but I still search for a recording of the final third. If you did hear the history of rock and roll now, the original program could not possibly have the same impact as it did on me in my formative years but I point to it today as a milestone in radio broadcasting and as a personal touchstone. Again and again, I encounter music or ideas that I first met on that Bill Drake marathon history lesson. Speaking of whom, as a full-page ad in Billboard magazine once asked, whatever happened to Bill Drake? Like the history of creating this special, we'll save Bill Drake's biography for another time. For now, let's close. As a teenager, the history of rock and roll showed me what Top 40 Radio could aspire to. 
Soon, Iowa's own KFMG would open my ears to the FM band's new underground music format. But that's another story. This has been Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach. If you are interested in reading more of my opinions, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. Sound Bites is available on Amazon. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and I'll see you next time. Let's see if we can uh, do this. The history of rock and roll.